Our scripture passage for today is found in John chapter 17. verses 6 through 10. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn and read along as I read aloud from the Word of God. Christ is speaking in prayer to the Father for His disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Let us pray. Dear Father, we give thanks for your word, because through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit... It has the ability, the power, to change our lives as you would have them changed. We ask that we would submit before you, for your word through your Holy Spirit, to have its proper and due effect as you would have it upon our hearts, our attitudes, our souls, our lives. Pray that my words would be faithful and in keeping with your word, because it is your word alone that is holy and just and true. In Jesus' name, amen. Early this past week, Sandy and I made a short trip up to Manassas, Virginia, the site of the first and second battles of Manassas, or as the Union Army labeled it, the first and second battles of Bull Run. As we were there, we spent a good deal of time hiking around the battlefields. Now, let me preface this by stating that... uh, I am not a Civil War buff other than as a passing interest, and Sandy may have greater aspirations towards that than I do. I find the battlefields fascinating, and uh, walking them to be a very solemn uh, sort of experience, Um, and have found the same to be true in walking the the Battle of Gettysburg or or any of the other places. but it's it's a it's a fascinating to consider the the way the wars the way the battles were fought the part that the battles played in the war in toto <clears throat> as we were there we spent a good deal of time hiking around the battlefield we saw a video presentation of the two battles <clears throat> and we read portions of a number of books in the bookstore regarding the Civil War in general and also the battles of Manassas in particular. One of the books that I was interested in was about the spiritual state of both armies. They had, interestingly enough, about four books regarding uh, revivals that occurred. Uh, One of them is called Christ in the Camp, and it's a big, big book. And uh, the other one that I was looking at in particular was a much smaller book, and I didn't locate the name of it. But it was interesting to note in glancing through this and reading particular portions of it that, well, the North was ostensibly fighting for the eradication of slavery, virtuous and noble cause, I think we could all agree. The South was fighting to retain slavery. Spiritually, I understand, I'm not making a... This is 
this is the reality of what this war was about. But I'm pointing out two specific positions with regard to one central aspect of the war. The North was fighting to remove slavery. The South was fighting to retain slavery. Spiritually speaking, the South, the Confederacy, was spiritually alive while the North was taken as a whole spiritually dead. Certainly both sides experienced some forms of spiritual revival throughout the war, as these books indicate. This commonly happens in war. But it remained with the South to have those in command, such as Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and others of similar quality, who had a firm, unshakable, and professed faith in the Lord as their Savior. They had a devotion to him which was evident to all and has been made very clear in the biographies about them. <clears throat> Even as biographies of George Washington have made the same faith clear regarding him. While U.S. Grant and those leading the Union troops expressed no faith or belief and had no use for it. Why? How did it come about in this way? The South, fighting to retain slavery, had a spiritual, spiritually alive faith, and the North, fighting to get rid of this evil, spiritually dead. <clears throat> More interestingly, why was it then that the South lost? <clears throat> Those particular questions are not specifically in my domain <laughs> today. <clears throat> which you might be glad about, <clears throat> to answer in the context of this passage. But in light of this comparison, we turn to these pages of Scripture. <clears throat> we see in this prayer of our Lord a truth that is represented in our day and age, as it were was during the Civil War, as it was during Jesus' time on earth. A simple truth might seem too simple to state. Nonetheless, some believe and others don't. Why? Certainly it is true that the truth concerning Christ goes out to one and all. His truth went to Pharisees and Sadducees during his time, teachers of the law and fishermen, high priests and prostitutes. Why should some come to faith while others remain stubborn and rebelliously resistant? We find the method for this occurrence in Christ's conversation with the Father. Now, we know that Christ revealed himself, <clears throat> although this passage speaks explicitly in a way that seems to contradict this, but follow me for a minute. We know that Christ revealed himself to both those who would believe and those who wouldn't. Yet as we see his prayer here, if we didn't know better, it might seem as though his message was limited to those who would accept, for he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. <clears throat> Did he not reveal the Father to those who were not given to him out of the world? Certainly Judas heard the same message that John did, right? <clears throat> and those in the temple courts heard about Christ being the living water as he preached there in previous chapters in the Gospel of John. How then could he speak so specifically of having delivered this revelation to a certain subset of people? because of the effectiveness of the revelation to a few alone. Although he spoke to all and his life was apparent to all, 
For instance, the example of his raising Lazarus from the dead. Many people saw it. Even more people heard about it so that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law gnashed their teeth and says, as long as this goes on, there is nothing we can do to stop this man. He spoke to all and he lived his life before all. The Lord God would only cause the message to take root in the hearts of some. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who prepares hearts and causes the word of God to take root. He is the one who brings about conviction. He causes people to repent. He causes them to see the truth of Christ as Son of God and only Savior. And as such, it is the case that some are given to accept Christ's Lordship while others are not. Now, I could consider this issue, which is called in theological terms... When the one who paid the price of an innocent death for our salvation was thankful to God for the gift of some who believed. This is nothing new. Even as the Lord revealed in his revelation of himself to Moses when Moses asked on the mount to see his glory. In Exodus 33:19, we read, And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. My choice. Now, <clears throat> while we were up in Manassas, we, we had to, to fulfill two specific, two specific roles in this, this short jaunt. And the first was to see a Civil War battlefield, and the second was, as I mentioned, to see a used bookstore, and it couldn't be any old used bookstore. So while we were at the used bookstore, which had, how many did they say? About 250,000 volumes. You could easily look at it in a day. I mean, walk around it in a day. <laughs> it was huge. <clears throat> Sandy came upon a book, which she passed to my attention, and I have at home. We bought it. The, the reminiscences, the observation of a farmer. And in the course of his observations as a farmer, he said that he was not only trying to glean seed from his field, but he was also trying to glean seed from his life. It was clear that he was not a, a Christian. It was a fascinating book and well-written. And the thing that, Sandy, did you look at the table of contents? Or just open it? You did. What was the chapter title? A Boy and a Preacher. It was fascinating because he talked about having grown up in a very small church that had a steady succession of pastors right after the next, after the next, after the next. And there was one that captured this boy's attention. He was a tall, thin man who was sorrowful most of the time. And this was as a result, as the boy expressed it, the man now, of his children all dying over the course of years and his wife dying afterwards before he got to this church. And the boy regarded him as he probably, this man probably felt of himself as a failure. 
And this boy, as he was writing, talked about uh, what the man preached. And, uh, and there was a certain spark in the man that the boy recognized. And he thought it was a spark of poetry and the spark of greatness. And this was the man that he chose to think back on and be thankful for and know that the man had never realized he considered him great. (laughs) That was a fascinating vignette. Yet in the midst of this, he talked about the man, and as he said, all the pastors in this church had preached a harsh and a hard gospel of God's choice, election, and predestination. Hard soil. And the boy... It was clear the man didn't, wanted to have nothing to do with it and couldn't stand it. <clears throat> How would this help this pastor? How would such a belief, <clears throat> would he preach it just because he was convinced without it having any, bene- any benefit to him? Well, it's clear as Christians reading this book that for a man who has lost his children and his wife, that the knowledge of God's determining all things and working all things together for his benefit would be the only way that he could remain faithful in what he did. And so what to the boy was a harsh soil, a terrible, hard, and dry biscuit of doctrine, was doubtless to this man what he clung to. As we consider this aspect Christ saying, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You and I realize that when we arrive here at church each Sunday, we are presented with the same issue. Admittedly, there are not a lot of people here each Sunday. Compared with a Food City 500 race, the amount is minuscule. Compared with many churches in town, this this is a smaller number. With many, it's the equivalent or larger. How do you and I react and respond to this? We could easily begin fuming, first at those who aren't here and should be, and then later, a natural result of that, at the Lord for those who aren't here. We could also miss the fact that those who are not here are often not here because of our failures as fellow believers and witnesses for Christ. Yet for Christ... As we look at him in this context and situation, there was no way in which he had failed. He had not failed. Yet the number was small. Admittedly, the number would soon grow. So certainly some of those to whom the gospel had been preached, admittedly, first off, not all of his followers were there at present. He was speaking to 11 of them, and there were more. But admittedly, the number would grow. So some of those who had heard him in the previous three years were called and chosen. They just had not yet come to faith. Nevertheless, when we read in the book of Acts, incidentally, today is Pentecost Sunday. It was appropriate to talk about when the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles. And they began preaching in foreign tongues. And many people heard them and heard the message of Peter, which said, Repent, for you have brought about the death of this Christ. It was as God chose it to be, but nonetheless you were guilty. And their hearts were touched to the quick, and they trusted in Christ. And the number saved that day was something like three, four, or 5,000. And then they kept on adding thousands to them. Nevertheless, this was a small number in terms of the whole. 
Yet for Christ, there was no way in which he failed, despite the smallness of the number. (coughs) But as we look at him and his 11 disciples, there was already one who was not among them. One was gone because he was not included among those the Father had given him. Now, if you were doing it from a human perspective, wouldn't you say, okay, God, we're going to set this thing out ahead of time, and everyone who's a part of this group is going to be saved. Period. From a human standpoint, that's the way we want it. That's the way we would intend it. And so as we look at Christ with his 11, the smallness of that number was not in any way blamable upon any default of his. But as we gather together and look around, if we remove any examination of our own responsibility, in other words, just take our own responsibility out of the equation entirely, we still have the option of frustration, disgust, and cynicism about the small number who are here. Or we can be thankful for those who, by the grace of the Lord God, are here. Thankful for those that the Lord has seen fit to prompt those around you to be here on a Sunday morning gathered for the purpose of worshiping the Lord together with you. This is what Christ did. He gave thanks. It was not his intent, and he would not focus on the lost, although at another place and time they were the focus of his sorrow and his prayers. But instead, acknowledging that the Father was in control of the number in general and the individuals in specific, that God was in control of these things. And he's speaking to the Father here. These followers of Christ were a gift from the Father to the Son, proving what has been said so often in previous verses and chapters, (coughs) that the Father delights in honoring giving glory to the Son, just as the Son has brought glory to the Father. We read previously in verse 4 of the same chapter, Christ saying, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So we find it no surprise that Christ's obedience and sacrifice are honored by the Father by this gift of believers who accepted Christ as having come from the Father, being one with the Father. But how are these believers, these who are a gift from the Father to the Son, how are they going to show up in the world? Consider with me for a moment. We know that Christ is the Lord of the universe. We know that he came to earth to live and die so that some would be saved from having to pay the penalty for their sins by suffering eternal damnation. We know that he paid that penalty for them. Yet, depending on our understanding of what Christ was saying here, we could well come to the conclusion that his power was quite restricted, severely limited. For if he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and certainly he could persuade all men to trust in him, right? This would not be beyond his power. If it was simply up to their personal choice, then certainly with all the power at his disposal, he could not fail to win all of them as his followers. Yet it is clear, and he specifies it, that he has not won all of them. 
if that was what he set out to do. <coughs> and if that were all there were to set out to do, he certainly would have set out to do that. If it were a question of winning them. Nobody starts a game of chess with the intention of losing. Nobody plays a game of soccer with the intention of losing. The intent is to win if winning is the goal. But if the intent all along was has been clearly stated so that the word of God would be declared and all those whom God intended would believe, while there would be many who not having been chosen to believe would remain firm in their unbelief, there can be no sense of failure whatsoever and no reality of failure. The job is complete. The victory is soon to be won with the perfect sacrifice. None are lost who were intended to be saved, while all who were intended to be saved are indeed saved. Success, not failure. Not a half job. <clears throat> we find this clearly stated elsewhere here in the Gospel according to John and throughout the Scriptures. In John chapter 10, 28 and following. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand, Christ speaking. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Yet, what if there is little difference between the lost and the saved? What then? Again, this would indicate a lack of power in the blood of Christ, a lack of effect in the life, teaching, and sacrificial death of Christ. As though it could simply be said, okay, some of you, you're all the same and you'll remain all the same, but I'm just to declare, <clears throat> count off by ones and twos, you're a one, you're a two, you're a one, you're a two, you're a one, you're a two, and go down, of course, no difference, just a declaration, that's all there is to it. A meaningless thing, wouldn't it be? An utterly meaningless thing. And if we are to proclaim simply, trust in Christ and you will be saved, and to go not one step beyond that, then we have declared a cheap grace. We have declared that all it is is a matter of saying one, two, I'm a one, I want to be a one. Don't you two? <clears throat> I mean, don't you one? <laughs> <clears throat> this cannot be. <clears throat> those who belong to Christ are different from those who belong to the world. It's again, not by their own merit, by God's, but by God's choice. Our passage tells us that they are different in what they know and what they believe. Christ says, Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. <clears throat> this knowledge that is spoken of here is, is a knowledge that is based in faith and trust in God. We read in Scripture that Satan has perfect theology. He is not lacking in any knowledge of God, creation, the universe, the spiritual powers, what has been and what will be. <clears throat> what he is lacking is faith in God's work for his benefit. He hates God. And true faith is based upon confidence in the Lord working to our good for our blessing and only for our good. So those who know through faith have belief in Christ. They are not only different in what they believe and they know, they are also different in what they do. In verse 6, Christ says, 
they have obeyed your word. Not just the word obeyed, but also kept and accepted. For those who know Christ through faith, his word is not just something that has value to them, but instead his word is a treasure for them, since they realize that it is through his word that eternal life is found and the way to please him is found. Not specifically the Bible itself, but because the Bible reveals God and his work. So, while there are many others who value the Bible as a historical document, as fascinating teaching, as moral instruction, or as writing which could be picked over and edited at will, his disciples hold it close, consider it precious, something that must be learned and not put aside, followed and not ignored, adhered to and not changed. Given the value the elect who trust in Christ place upon his word, which is direct from God, it is clear to us why the Bible is made up of the inspired writing of believers and does not include, for instance, histories of the life of Christ written by those such as Josephus or other ancient historians who might easily write about him and yet not have this devotion to Christ which causes a devotion and an obedience to his word. All who believe the word of God and conform to it in their actions, this is what comes of those who are the chosen. It's crucial to understand for as a measure today as it was then. Christ said in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Those who profess an interest in Christ at the least, and for many of us a devotion to Christ as his followers, this aspect of proof of followership must remain embedded in our understanding. Actions and words do not save but they are the evidence that salvation has had its effect upon our lives. As Christ said, I have appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. When we look like, when we talk like, when we think like, when we act like, when our attitudes are just like the world around us, the evidence of faith is lacking. When we are different, it is clear that God through his word is having his effect upon our lives. And now, with regard to their differences, it is crucial to point out They are not perfect. They have been declared holy. And yet, as we see Christ saying here, they have obeyed your word, we know that shortly to follow would be, at the very least, Peter's denial of Christ. And so it's crucial to recognize this. This does not mean perfection. It means a movement towards that goal, which will happen in glory in heaven, but is not complete until that point. They are different as well in what they receive. They receive the prayers of Christ for his followers, both then and now. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. There are times, indeed, when Christ mourns over Jerusalem. Christ is praying for the strength of those who are his followers. If it is true that some are chosen and some are not, then it would be a waste of time to pray for those who are not chosen to trust in him. And this he does not do. We are in a different situation. We are not God. We are not divine. And therefore we pray for all, not knowing who by God's grace he may have chosen and by our witness he might 
work through his power that they will trust in him. And that's what this is all about. <clears throat> they have need of his prayers because the bitter enmity of the world against him. This is a message throughout the Gospel of John. You are mine, and because you are mine, the world hates you and will hate you. And as such, they need the prayers of Christ for their protection, for their blessing, for their perseverance. And we receive the same thing from him. <coughs> Even as we consider those who do not believe, <coughs> there is great sorrow in our hearts as there was in the heart of Christ. Yet we know that God's will is done. And in this is found comfort. For those who die without faith, despite our witnessing to them time and time again, it is no mistake and no error. There is no sense, and I emphasize this, there is no sense in which if they had but lived a bit longer, they would have believed. God does not goof by causing people to die accidentally, as we use the term. Before the time when had they been living, they would have trusted in Christ. Now, as a pastor, I have watched time and again as people have turned away from the believers. We've all observed these things. While many people choose for various reasons, some good, some questionable, to move from one church to another, whether it's our church or any other church, when some leave this particular representation of the Church of Christ, they are turning their backs on the believers, the church, and Christ altogether. This happens in all churches that are faithful to Christ. Most often, such departures have been a result of specific identifiable rebellion against Scripture in specific areas. I am saddened and I grieve deeply when this happens. It brings sorrow to all of us. So often it is much more than the departing of friends, because involved is the ignoring of Scripture and rebellion, the point to the very real and heart-shattering likelihood that these were never true followers of Christ or are in open rebellion against him. When they leave, they are refusing to be held accountable to the word of God, which is our only rule of faith and conduct. They understand I'm not talking about people leaving for specific reasons, but we're aware of the fact that whether at Cornerstone Chapel or elsewhere, many people leave because it gets too hot. And I don't mean that the, that the heat is put on in an artificial way, but there is heat put on because the Word of God is hot. <clears throat> There's no question about it. <clears throat> it is a sword to divide. <clears throat> so often when people leave, they're refusing to be held accountable to the Word of God, which is our only rule of faith and conduct. And often following their departure, <clears throat> we observe further evidence that their conduct exhibits even further their lack of conformity to the Word of God, which is one of the signs of a true believer in Christ. <clears throat> Whether through marrying an unbeliever, giving up worship with God's people entirely, destroying their families, or like examples of disobedience. How do you and I face such sorrows? <clears throat> with comfort that the Lord never deserts His own, and that if they are among those who are chosen... And even in the midst of terrible misery and agony, God is not done dealing with them, and he will turn them back to him, or they will die <clears throat> before going further. Now, we've been talking about that in the adult Sunday school class <clears throat> over the past several months. <clears throat> and if they do not know him, 
And God may use these things to turn them to him, or it may just be evidence, fruit that is evidence to those who trust in Christ. This one does not belong to him. Sorrow is nonetheless always there. Because we, too, live in a world that, like Christ, sorrow is so much greater for him because he is divine. He is the only means of salvation. And we're just speaking for another. We're speaking for Christ. And yet the sorrow is so very real. Because there are those whose backs are turned far from Christ and who are suffering so greatly. And we can see it. And we can declare, here is the cure for that disease. And yet declare as we will, unless The Holy Spirit works in their hearts because of God's choice of them. It's fruitless. It causes, it accomplishes its goal, which is to declare the glory of God and to see that none are without excuse, but the result will not happen. And so as we consider these things, we must take a hold of the fact that God is sovereign and he is in control and what he wills happens And in all of these things, he is doing so for the glory of Christ and for the blessing of those who know Christ or will know Christ. Take confidence in these things and give thanks to him for bringing us to know him and give thanks that we are not able to see who he has chosen so that we will continue to be faithful to proclaim this message and to pray that God will work in the hearts of our family members and our friends, that they too will trust in him. If you were in this position and you do not know with regard to your own state, understand that the message of election is not a message which is to push you off or hold you away, but instead it is a message that is simply to declare God's utter and complete control of all things. Be thankful if you are uncomfortable. Be thankful even if you declare to others around you the message of salvation and they are uncomfortable. Because this is frequently the first step towards God's showing them that their way leads to damnation and only his way is right. Respond to the promptings of conviction. Encourage others to do the same. And give thanks to God for his work through Christ. Let us pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would cause us in all things to give thanks, glory, and honor to you. We pray that you would cause us to trust in you, in your divine power, and your unceasing blessing. We thank you that you have chosen many to trust in Christ. We thank you for choosing us. We trust that you have. We trust that each one of us will turn to Christ and embrace him as their Savior and live for him. That each one of us will have his words be the joy and the instruction of our lives. We anticipate being with you in heaven. We ask your forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.